Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Nurture versus nature. It's a question we've asked a million times, my creepy friend, especially in true crime. It's always on our mind. Was this person born bad, or did they become bad due to the terrible environment they were born into? Not everyone who was born into terrible circumstances comes out terribly in the end. But perhaps, the mental scars of those early traumas are just too much for some people. And if that's the case, at what point do we consider them insane or crazy? And how do we determine those who can be rehabilitated? I want to tell you about Nico Jenkins, and I'm curious to know what you think, creep. Because I'm not sure I know how to feel about the case. Nor did the prosecutors and law enforcement agents involved in the case either. On August 21st, 2013, Andrea Kruger was finishing her bartending shift at the Deja Vu Lounge in Omaha, Nebraska. She was tired feeling the aches and pains of standing for hours on her feet, and the tension behind her knees from leaning over the bar, slinging drinks to thirsty patrons. It was late, and although her three children were home asleep and wouldn't be awake to say goodnight to her, Andrea would have been eager to give them each a kiss on the forehead and readjust their blankets to make sure her three children slept comfortably through the night. Andrea wrestled her keys from her purse and she stomped the pavement, walking fast to her vehicle. The familiar beep of the alarm turning off and the clicking of mechanisms unlocking echoed in the empty parking lot. Bartending is fun, but it's really hard work. Nothing would have felt more satisfying to Andrea at the end of a shift quite like the satisfaction and release of tension that sitting brings. But as Andrea eagerly jumped into her car, she had no idea that she tragically would not be making it home to her three children that night. At 2.15 a.m., Omaha Law Enforcement Dispatch received a call reporting the sounds of shots fired. A deputy sheriff turned on his lights and sirens and sped through the streets, winding his way to the area the shots had woken the neighborhood, ringing in their ears as a most unpleasant alarm clock. In the middle of the road lay a woman, suffering from multiple gunshot wounds, blood leaking out onto the pavement. She wasn't going to live. The woman dying in the street was Andrea Kruger. Law enforcement quickly settled in that early morning, trying to pick away at the surroundings, trying to discover some evidence that might point them in a direction. Had she known her killer... Was this targeted, or perhaps was it random? If it was random, then police knew they'd have a long road ahead of them. As police began digging into Andrea's past and present, speaking with her husband, speaking with her co-workers, having to sift through the looks of remorse and sorrow that beset the faces of those that knew her, 
as they found out what happened to Andrea. Her car was discovered in northern Omaha, not far from where she'd been found lying in the street, dead from multiple gunshot wounds. Police believed the SUV had been abandoned roughly two and a half hours after the vehicle had been stolen, and that a pathetic attempt to set the vehicle interior on fire had been made, most likely to try and destroy the evidence. But the breaks just kept on coming, and luckily police wouldn't have to file this away as a cold case file, preventing the family from having closure, because an ex-girlfriend of a man named Nico Jenkins came forward. She was scared and tentative with police, but told investigators that she'd seen her ex-boyfriend Nico Jenkins get a gun from one of his cousins. She was afraid, though, and hadn't come to police because using the threat of this gun, he'd threatened to kill her family, saying he was going to send demonic forces to her mother's home. Police set their sights on Nico now. Looking for his last movements, they began to reconstruct his last few days. Who had he seen? Where had he been? Once he got the gun, what happened next? And as they searched through the pile of hay, needles began to prick their fingertips. Surveillance footage was discovered of a woman close to Nico buying a distinct type of ammunition. The same ammunition that had been used in the murder of Andrea Kruger. And on August 30th, 2013, Nico Jenkins was arrested on four counts of first-degree murder. Andrea, though, hadn't been Nico's first victim. There had been three murders before Andrea, making it a total of four murders in the span of just ten days. But hopefully she would be the last. Nico Jenkins was born in Omaha, Nebraska into a family riddled with issues. They were the quintessential family of Hellraisers, generationally disturbing the peace. But Nico wasn't a part of that yet. He was an innocent child. But this malleable piece of humanity was brought into a family setting that had deteriorated over several generations, escalating the Jenkins family and their relatives into violent crime, child neglect, and drug and alcohol abuse. Children like to mirror their parents, their friends and siblings. Every one of us are born with a need to impress and please those we see as authority figures. And possibly because of this, it didn't take Nico long to join his family and enter the justice system himself. At age seven, Nico found his mother's handgun and placed it in his backpack before trotting off to school to make finger paintings and learn addition and subtraction or whatever you do in grade two. Thankfully though, nothing came of the incident but Nico was now known to police, no longer as the innocent child of an abusive and criminal family, but was now one of the typical Jenkin Hellraisers. Due to this incident, Nico was removed from the care of his parents and placed in a group home. A group home he was then removed from at age 11 for repeatedly beating up everyone inside. This was a child who had grown up watching his father hit his mother and then watching as his mother struck back. The consequences and seriousness of these actions in Nico's mind are hard to sympathize with for those of us who didn't grow up in similar circumstances. But where does the empathy end? What line do we need to cross in order to recognize someone as a bad person? How do you know if someone is mentally capable of making rational decisions or not? 
These are all ethical questions that come up when looking at these cases, Creep. Can someone completely sane actually be insane? At age 13, Nico continued honing his love of violence, escalating to a stabbing, and in 2003, Nico Jenkins was finally sent to prison, having been charged for two armed carjackings. While in prison, though, Nico's grandmother died, and during a furlough, allowing him to attend his grandmother's funeral, still locked in chains and accompanied by prison guards, Nico assaulted one of them in what one can only assume was a pathetic escape attempt. And in 2009, Nico was convicted for this assault, resulting in another five years in prison. But the justice system is a beast of unknown nature at times and often reacts and works in ways almost as offensive and criminally insane as the individuals it convicts, or wrongfully convicts. In Nebraska, there is what's known as a good time law. A judge sentences each prisoner to a minimum sentence for parole eligibility, and a maximum term for release from prison. Sometimes those sentences are the same, a prisoner then gets a day off for every day served under Nebraska's good time law. Through this, Nico's term ended up being cut from two to four years in prison to a total of one to two years in prison to be served concurrently with his other prison time. And because of a misjudgment by a judge having him serve concurrent sentences and a good time law that in theory seems reasonable when prison is meant to rehabilitate those who are amenable, but can also be misapplied like in the Nico Jenkins case. Because of these reasons, Nico Jenkins was released early from prison in 2013. In July 2013, after more than 10 long years in prison, Nico Jenkins walked out a free man, but not the same man mentally or physically who had entered jail. While in prison, locked away in isolation, Nico began a bit of a jailhouse metamorphosis. He had begun to tattoo and scar his face, attempting to appear more menacing, more evil, more villainous, and in some people's opinion, trying to look like a serial killer, while others said he was trying to emulate the look of a snake. One thing is certain though, the effect was uncomfortable. Two weeks had passed since Nico was set free from prison when this happened. So white F-150, we got two parties inside the vehicle, appear to be shot in the head. And can you send a squad to our location? Less than two weeks after Nico Jenkins was released from prison, police discovered the bodies of Juan Pena and Jorge Ruiz, shot dead in their car in Omaha. They had seemingly been robbed and their pockets turned out, and there appeared to be no good reason for them to have been shot. Nico Jenkins just wanted to commit murder. He hadn't even known them. Police, of course, didn't know at the time that it was Nico. Then, eight days later, as police were still trying to discover a motive or lead in the double homicide case of Juan and Jorge, at around 7 a.m. in the morning, the body of Nico Jenkins' ex-inmate friend, Curtis Bradford, was found dead, shot twice in the back. Police later discovered, after arresting Nico for the four murders, that Curtis was the only victim that Nico actually knew. 
and even discovered a Facebook photo the two friends had posed for the night before Curtis was found murdered. It was shortly after Curtis Bradford was murdered that Nico made it for by taking the life of Andrea Kruger because he liked her car. Within the span of 10 days, Nico had murdered four people. But why? Sure, he was a violent criminal, but that's a world apart from being a spree killer. Why was Nico on a rampage killing across both racial and gender lines, which is rare? On September 3, 2013, Nico Jenkins confessed to four murders and was charged with four counts of murder, four counts of being a felon in possession of a firearm, and four counts of using a firearm, as well as facing charges for the terroristic threats of demons and death aimed at his ex-girlfriend and her family. In November 2013, Nico had been in jail, held on no bond for roughly two months. That's two months that the citizens of Omaha slept a little easier, but Nico was far from finished. In a letter he wrote to the Omaha World Herald newspaper, he addressed the families claiming he would plead guilty to all charges, and that he wished to get the mental help he so clearly and desperately needed. Nico also blew the whistle on the corrections institutions which had held him, as the health department was well aware of the Egyptian god Apophis, who Nico claimed had been directing his every action and the demonic forces at play pulling the strings. It was discovered that mental health evaluations had clearly shown Nico Jenkins had needed mental health assistance as early as the second grade, when he had brought a gun to school, an event Nico claimed was predicated by the Egyptian serpent god Apophis, speaking to him and telling him to kill. This is where I start to have issues with the case, and where many creeps like you and I do. Was Nico Jenkins the product of a failing mental health care system? The product of an abusive family setting that exacerbated the underlying issues? And the product of a social services system that also failed to get Nico the help he needed before his stint in prison, which also failed to get him the help he needed? Or was he a cold-blooded killer? working on an insanity plea to escape the death penalty. In February 2014, Nico filed a federal lawsuit against the state of Nebraska for releasing him from prison wrongfully, while denying him the mental health treatment he said he needed. The lawsuit was seeking $24.5 million in damages. In light of this, in a pretrial hearing, the judge ordered a psychiatric evaluation of Nico. Determined to get to the bottom of the claims made by defense in the light of the supporting evidence that Nico was not competent to stand trial, the state-mandated psychiatrist sat across from him, asking him the usual questions, asking him about his relationship with the Egyptian god Apophis, who Nico claimed saved him from attempting suicide while in solitary, asking him why he had committed the murders, listening to the stories of his childhood, Ultimately, the psychiatrist concluded that Nico was suffering from antisocial personality disorder, but was likely faking psychotic symptoms. In other words, Nico was fully aware of his actions and the consequences of those actions. In the opinion of the court appointed psychiatrist, Nico was merely making up the voices he heard in his head as a way to justify his murders and actions. But was that actually the case? 
Was Nico suffering from debilitating psychosis that prevented his ability to be cognizant of what he had done and the lasting consequences? Or was he faking it for the insanity plea? The trial began after Nico was found competent to stand trial. And in a not-so-sane moment, Nico requested to represent himself. He maintained throughout the trial, the voices of Apophis, his own personal Egyptian god, spoke to him and commanded him, and enacted his will through Nico. And throughout the trial, Nico spoke in tongues, howled and laughed as the details of his victims' deaths were recounted back to him. Perhaps it was a clever and extremely dedicated show. Perhaps it wasn't. But ultimately, on April 16, 2014, a jury found Nico Jenkins guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. So that's it, right? Nico was locked up, safely from society, the story and truth finally known to the families and morbidly curious public. Well, not exactly, creeps. While in prison, Nico Jenkins began to perform more body modifications on himself and was involved in 12 incidents behind bars. He carved the word Satan onto his face. He carved a backwards 666 onto his forehead, but accidentally did it backwards, not taking into account that's what mirrors tend to do when you look in them. He even cut his tongue in half to resemble the tongue of a snake, smearing his blood all over the walls of his cell. But probably most disturbingly, he took a razor, his tool of choice in all of his body modifications, to his own genitalia trying to cut and shape it into what he believed looked like the genitalia of a serpent. This resulted in 27 stitches. Now, this all sounds like a crazy person. Someone who is completely removed from a sane and rational mind. But prosecutors reported Nico told prison guards and doctors he was only self-mutilating in order to use the insanity defense and embarrass the administration of the jail, which was receiving more than its fair share of flack for the continued ability of Nico to acquire razor blades in jail. Finally, in May of 2017, three years after he was found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder, delayed by the multiple psychiatric re-evaluations, Nico Jenkins was put in handcuffs and led into a courtroom for his death penalty hearing. Nico was then sentenced to 450 years in prison on weapons charges connected to the murders and received the death penalty for the murders themselves. Some of you may be asking, now, Cole, how could you have doubts? Well, maybe it's my lack of confidence in a justice system that seems to fail as much as it succeeds. Or perhaps it's because later it was found that a psychiatric reevaluation of Nico Jenkins' mental state by Dr. Bruce Gutnick had actually found Nico was not competent to stand trial. It appears perhaps the death penalty hearing wasn't only delayed by Nico's antics, but because prosecutors might have been trying to accumulate enough expert testimony that supported their version of events. That Nico was a psychopathic, murderous, born bad kind of guy. But in Dr. Bruce Gutnick's psychiatric evaluation, he found that Nico no longer admitted to killing four people in 2013. That he believed he would be let out of prison so that he would be allowed to travel to Cuba to make nuclear weapons. And that Nico believed he must be killed so that he could be resurrected. 
Eventually, Nico was prescribed, from what I can tell from my amateur research, what appears to be antipsychosis medication, which seemed to have improved his stability. This was in direct contrast to what the prosecution wanted to see, though. And maybe it was all a clever and dedicated, well-thought-out ploy to dupe the courts. But Nico Jenkins was also found to have a dangerously low IQ, only high enough to stand trial in court, which the defense ultimately tried to get even lower so that he couldn't stand trial, so there could be bias there as well. It seems a little too methodical for someone lacking critical and abstract thinking skills, though. But once again, creeps, that could all have been part of his plan to escape the death penalty. In 2019, the court ultimately rejected the notion that Nico Jenkins had any mental illness, so the death penalty remained a viable sentencing. I don't want you to sympathize with Nico. I don't want you to think he is a good man, because he isn't. He is a murderer. But it makes me wonder how a jury could find him competent and sane without a shadow of a doubt. It also makes me wonder what turned that malleable baby full of promise and nothing but good into the man responsible for the death of four others. Was it his abusive upbringing? Was it a justice system determined to punish instead of rehabilitate? Was it a lack of medical health resources? Nico Jenkins could very well be a psychopathic method actor in his own right. Or he could actually be insane. All I'll say is, the system failed. It's just a question of where. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.